Uh, back in 2010, I left the church. Uh, I was pastoring in Pennsylvania because I felt the call to Wesley Seminary. So I came to Marion in 2010. My youngest son at the time started to attend the preschool here. So we uh, visited Lakeview Wesleyan Church several times. And I have to say, uh, you are the friendliest church in Grant County. I'd say north of the Mason-Dixon, but I'm just going to say Grant County for now. And uh, here's a case in point. Uh, we were here one communion Sunday. And uh, my kids at the time were seven, six, and four. They're sitting over there. They're now uh, 15, 14, and 12. But uh, it was communion Sunday. And let's just say with my three little kids, uh, the meal was not as tranquil or sacred as I had hoped. It was chaotic. Uh, We were sitting, I remember, right back in this section, uh, maybe fourth pew from the back, and we were fumbling the communion elements. Our kids were crazy that morning, uh, loud and obnoxious. Qualities they get from their mother, Amy. <laughs> Actually, if you know both of us, you know that's not the case. And uh, I remember a white-haired woman right in front of us turned around. And I'm thinking to myself, man, she is going to let us have it. She's going to yell at us, control your kids, mister, get things under control, you know. She turned around and she looked straight into my eyes. Not like this, but with a beautiful, grace-filled smile that said without words to me, you don't need to be embarrassed. You are welcome here. Jesus welcomes you and your little children, and so do we. And now, nine years later, I still brag about this church, one of the friendliest churches in town. And I better get into the sermon, or you won't be as friendly to me if you don't get out of here by noon, but just leave it at that. The Christian life is a multi-phase building project. How many of you have been a part of a company uh, or a church that did a multi-phase building project? Anybody? Uh, Usually, not always, but typically the first phase of the building project is delightful. There's a lot of fresh energy and motivation and vision. But then there's phase two, which is often difficult, sometimes disturbing, because there's a leak of energy and vision and momentum. And a lot of building projects get stuck in limbo between phase one and phase two. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote a letter to the Colossians. And in that letter, he lays out an architectural design for a two-phase building project. And I want to start out by reading what he sketches out in the very beginning of his letter. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in Colossians a lot, so you may want to just keep your bookmark there, uh, because we're going to be coming back to it. But here's the architectural design, the sketch. Chapter 1, beginning with verse 21. Paul writes, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. 
If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you have heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Phase one is delightful. Phase one of the building project of the Christian life is salvation. All of us in this room were once separated, alienated from God. And Paul says, because of what Christ has done on the cross, we who were far from God, separated, have been saved. I don't know where you were when you were far from God, uh, but you were not out of God's sight and not out of God's mind. Uh, I was... At the time, far from God, a high school dropout, alcoholic, son of two drug-addicted parents. I like to say I was so low I could walk under a snake wearing a top hat. And then God found me. And he saved me. And he saved you. And here you are. The separation that you caused was overcome by the reconciliation that God initiated. That's phase one, and it's pure grace. In phase one, God doesn't just do the heavy lifting. God does all the lifting. He provides all the building materials for phase one. He designs the architectural plans for phase one. He does all the construction in phase one. It's provenient grace, phase one. It's what God does for us, despite us. Phase two... It's a bit different. Paul says that we were saved, phase one, to be sanctified, phase two. Paul puts it this way. You were saved, brought near, reconciled, so that God could present you holy, without blemish, free from accusation. You were saved, I was saved, to be sanctified. And while phase one is all about provenient grace, what God does for us, phase two is about partnering grace. It's what God accomplishes with us. Again, God does most of the lifting, almost all of it. He provides all of the resources in phase two like he did in phase one. He designs all of the plans in phase two like he did in phase one. And he does almost all of the construction in phase two like he did in phase one. But you and I, in phase two, sanctification, have a role to play. And let's be honest. Sometimes we don't play our role real well. And because of it, sometimes we Christians stay stuck in limbo between phase one, salvation, and phase two, sanctification. We stay in limbo a while. And people drive by the building project of our lives and they sense it's not quite right. Like phase two is not done. Has phase two been abandoned? Have they run out of money? Have they run out of energy? It looks kind of funny, like the building is not quite complete. I think of a a friend of mine I've known a long time, been a Christian for 30 years, family member actually. 
He's been saved. Phase one has been started 30 years ago. But most people around him, without being judgmental, would, would admit it seems like there's not been a lot of work since phase one started. The building project of his life seems to have been sort of abandoned. And that's the disturbing part. The disturbing part of phase two is not that God wants to not only save us but sanctify us, not only forgive us but transform us, not only accomplish phase one but accomplish phase two. That's not disturbing. What's disturbing is that for many of us, phase two is like a unicorn. We've heard that it exists, but we haven't really seen it or experienced it and wonder if it's real. Now, our Calvinist friends, and they are our friends, will tell us that what Paul is talking about when he's talking about holiness is imputed holiness. The holiness of Christ that is credited to us despite our lack of holiness. Right? Like a grandparent's inheritance. We get the money, we've done nothing to earn it. And that is surely what Paul has in mind at phase one. But if you read the rest of Colossians, you discover that Paul also has in mind imparted righteousness, imparted holiness. Not only the holiness of Christ credited to us despite us, but the holiness of Christ cultivated in us, through us. Sanctification is a five-syllable theological word that has been made way too complex. I'm going to define it in a one-syllable word by the end of the sermon, I promise you. But for now, let's just note that sanctification is the process of being made like Christ in word, thought, and deed. Many of us, though, are wondering if it's possible. Is is verse 22 a pipe dream? For long-time Christians stuck in limbo between phase one and phase two. Here's where we may want to go Calvinist. I, uh, shortly after I came to faith in Christ through Teen Challenge, God landed me in a Wesleyan church that talked a lot about sanctification and holiness. And I watched in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s, I watched a lot of the sins of my youth fall like flies to the ground all around me. And while I think I may have had seasons of sanctification or maybe even come close to it in my 20s, now in my 40s, I've got to be honest, I feel a little bit cynical about all this. I'm cynical when I look outside of me. I've been a pastor for 15 years before coming here about 10 years ago. Now I pastor pastors. But as a pastor, it seemed to me that the people who talked the most about holiness embodied it least. Think of one guy in my church who didn't drink or smoke or do drugs or sleep around, but neither was he generous or forgiving or gracious. He talked about holiness a lot. (laughs) That made me cynical. But then I look inside of my own heart, and then I become really cynical. Because while lots of sins that I've struggled with have dropped like flies to the ground, more subtle ones are popping up in my 40s. Egotistical pride. Anger. Jealousy. 
depression, anxiety, fear, worry. Sometimes I feel like I'm playing spiritual whack-a-mole, you know, whack-a-sin. Whack-a-sin, another sin pops up. Whack-a-sin, another sin pops up. Whack-a-sin, another sin pops up. And this all makes me cynical. And so the question I've been asking myself lately, and I hope you'll ask yourself this morning, is have I stopped believing in the possibility of phase two? Sanctification. Yeah, I believe God can save me, but can he sanctify me? I believe God can forgive me, he has, but can he transform me? Is it possible to be so enamored with Christ, so filled with his spirit, so captivated by his beauty, that even the most attractive sins have no power over me? Is it possible to be so in love with God, so in love with people, that even the most tempting temptations are as gross to me as the smell of junior high boys at a youth all-nighter or the arrogance of Yankee fans? (laughs) I know some of you just got back from New York, which is my sort of stomping grounds from Philadelphia. Is it possible? I'm, uh, I'm still recovering from 80s music. I wish there was a recovery group for me. But I, how many of you were teenagers in the 80s? Raise your hand. Let me see you. Yeah. You'll remember this song. I remember the song uh, by the Human League, 1986, I'm Only Human. Remember that one? Uh, it starts off with a guy singing about a time when he was separated from his girlfriend. And while they were separated, he confesses he cheated on her. And then the female voice comes in and says that, oh, by the way, while we were separated and you were cheating on me, I was cheating on you. It's a beautiful romantic love song, isn't it? I told you, I'm recovering from 80s music. And then the chorus, uh, frequently repeated, goes like this. I'm only human. Of flesh and blood, I'm made. I'm only human, born to make mistakes. I'm only human. God can save me. He can't sanctify me. I'm stuck with my anger. I'm stuck with my lust. I'm stuck with my sexuality. I'm stuck with my depression. I'm only human, after all. I'm stuck. That's, to me, even in the Wesleyan church, uh, the popular view of discipleship today. God can save me from my sin. He just can't sanctify me from it. I'm only human after all. God can save me here and now, but he's only going to sanctify me there and later. I'm only human. The theological word for that perspective is hogwash. (laughs) You're not stuck. I'm not stuck. But the longer we live in limbo between phase one, salvation, and phase two, sanctification, the more we'll be tempted to do what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden when they realized the building project of their life was not done. What did they do to cover their nakedness? They grabbed fig leaves. And the longer we live in limbo between phase one and phase two, the more we'll be tempted to grab some fig leaves. And the fig leaves Paul talks about in the Colossian letter are the fig leaves of legalism and the fig leaf of libertinism. 
talks about both. Let me, let me just describe them the way Paul does. First of all, the fig leaf of legalism. When we feel like we're undone, we're tempted to grab that leaf. Uh, and that comes out of Judaism, the Jewish religion of the day, first century. The fig leaf of legalism is about doing what makes me look good. My God is my self-righteousness. What was happening is uh, Gentiles, non-Jews, were coming to faith in Christ in Colossae. And then Jews were coming in and telling the Colossian Christians, before you can become a Christian, you've got to become Jewish. Which means obeying the law. It's like Apple telling these Colossian Christians they needed an upgrade when they didn't. Sorry, Apple fans. But here's what Paul says. Uh, This is in chapter 2. Paul's talking about the fig leaf of legalism. Verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These things are a shadow that were to come. Uh, Down to verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elementary spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to the rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. I don't need to tell you that a part of our Wesleyan history, unfortunately, and there's a lot to celebrate is based in legalism. When holiness wasn't happening quick enough, we tried to impose holiness from the outside in. And we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Because holiness can only be cultivated from the inside out. Well, the fig leaf of legalism will get us nowhere. It's based in pride. The fig leaf of libertinism came out of the pagan world. And it's all about doing what makes us feel good. The Colossian Christians came out of a pagan background. And paganism is built on pleasure and lust and desire. In fact, in the first century, a pagan could go to the pagan temple and worship their gods by having sex with temple prostitutes. That's the way they worshipped. They had figured out a way to align their wants with their worship. Now, North American Christians would never do that. But those pagans did. And Paul tells them that fig leaf of libertinism, liberty to do what they want when they want to do it, will never get them anywhere. Chapter 3, verse 5. He talks about that fig leaf. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And he says to the Colossians, you used to walk in these ways. And the life you once lived. I heard a preacher once ask, if you get to where you're going, will you be where you want to be? And if we are grabbing the fig leaves of legalism, or libertinism, we will end up in a place we don't want to be. Because fig leaves block intimacy with God and intimacy with people. You cannot be naked and unashamed with God and people when you're wearing leaves. 
So what's the answer, Paul? What's the key to my sanctification? If it's not legalistic pride and it's not libertine lust, what is it? Paul's like, I'm glad you asked. Because right after he says that legalism and libertinism will get us nowhere, chapter 3, verse 12 is the answer. Following. Here's what he says. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on, say it with me, love. Put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. The answer is not legalism. It's not libertinism. The answer to phase two is love. Which reminds me of another 80s tune I'm trying to forget. Tina Turner. What's love got to do with it? Whoa, what's love got to do, got to do with it? According to Paul, when it comes to sanctification, everything. Everything. In fact, he gets real practical right after that. He says, okay, here's what it looks like in marriage. Here's what it looks like in parenting. Here's what it looks like in the employee-employer relationship. Love. The level of our sanctification is determined not by religion, but by relationship. The level of our holiness is not determined by how many scripture verses we can quote or how often we come to church or how many potlucks and hymn sings we attend. They will know we are Christians not by how many Chris Tomlin songs we have memorized or how many Beth Moore books we've read. They will know we are Christians by our love. And not just love for our spouse, which for most of us is pretty easy on most days. And not just for our kids and not just for our parents. Not just for our friends. Sanctification is determined by how well we love people we don't like. Or know. Or judge. It's loving the immigrant. It's loving the black person, the white person, the red person, the brown person, the yellow person. It's loving the heterosexual and the homosexual. It's loving the Democrat and the Republican. (laughs) They'll know we are Christians by our love. Paul says, put on love. And in order to put on love, you've got to take off the leaves. You can't dress in layers in the Christian life. You've got to take off the leaf to put on love. I have a great picture in my head of love. Uh, it was a church that showed me it. The Belleville Wesleyan Church in western New York is a church probably none of you have ever heard of. Church of 25 people. The average age of the people in the church was 125. They will never show up in a district journal. 
They will not be celebrated in a Christian publication. They will not be interviewed by the news. Just 25 people. But they were remarkable. What made them remarkable was not their worship service. I remember the piano player and the organist would argue during the service about what key the song was supposed to be played in while the song leader was going back and forth like a tennis match. It was bad. And they weren't remarkable because of the special music of 80-year-old Dorothy, whose voice sounded like the cry of a cat being tortured. (laughs) And it wasn't the beauty of the sanctuary that made them remarkable unless you like psychedelic 70s colors and fly strips containing hundreds of dead flies hanging all around the sanctuary. And what made them remarkable was not their 23-year-old, homiletically clueless, theologically wet-behind-the-ears pastor. It was something else that made them remarkable. It's a guy named John from the church. John grew up in that church. The church practically raised him, discipled him. Gave him chances in ministry. John wasn't quite right in the head, but church loved him. John got married, had a couple kids. His wife discovered that John was sexually molesting his children. Called social services. John was arrested and served several years in prison, as he should. Well, the church was devastated. They were embarrassed. Uh, you know, all the, all the newspapers said that this John was a member of the Belleville Wesleyan Church. So he betrayed their trust, and he diminished, if not destroyed, their witness in the community. I don't know if they ever recovered in the community, honestly. Well, John gets out of prison. His wife and kids are gone. He doesn't even know where they are. All of John's friends have abandoned him. They're embarrassed to ever have known him. He's got nobody. One day, after he gets out of prison, he shows up at Belleville Wesleyan Church, hat in hand, tail between his legs. And even though he's hurt this church, he's betrayed their trust, and he's diminished their witness, you'd never know it. Because they welcomed and loved John like he was a king come home when really he was a criminal. Now, they didn't let him work with kids or anything, but they certainly loved him, let him do the ushering. The church was all he had. And they loved him well, despite all the reasons not to love him. And that's a remarkable sanctified church, if you ask me. I love the movie Beauty and the Beast, the animated and the not animated version. I cry every time I watch it, I do. What gets me every time is the power of Belle, the beautiful one, to love the beast. And if you've seen the movie, you know that the love of the beautiful one makes the beast less beastly and more beautiful in time so that he actually begins to love as well. That's the Christian life. We receive 
Beasts like us, I'm a beast anyway, beasts like us receive the love of Jesus Christ, the beautiful one. That's salvation, phase one. And in time, that love is supposed to make us less beastly and more beautiful so that the love we've received is extended through us to others. That's phase two. All I want to communicate today, here's my message in a nutshell. And I'm going to be with you five more weeks this summer, whether you like it or not. But here's the message. I'm going to do a holy love series, and we're going to talk about what holy love looks like in practical ways the next few times I'm with you. But for now, my message, again, from an 80s song is this. Journey, one of my favorites. Don't stop believing. You ever play the air guitar to that one? Don't stop believing that the God who saved you at phase one can sanctify you at phase two, that the God who has forgiven you can transform you. Don't stop believing. That's the message. Don't stop believing that you can love that neighbor who lets his dog doo-doo on your lawn and doesn't clean it up. Don't stop believing. Yes, you can love that person because now God has reconciled you through Christ's physical body to present you holy. Yeah, but I can't love my parents. They're driving me crazy. They're limiting my time on Xbox and forcing me to do chores. Yes, you can. Because now God has reconciled you through Christ's physical body to present you holy. My marriage has too much water under the bridge. There's no way we can love and trust each other again. Yes, you can. Because now God has reconciled you through Christ's blood to present you holy. I can never forgive my pastor or my church or my sibling or my employer who disappointed me. Yes, you can. Because now God has reconciled you through Christ's physical body to present you holy. So here's the challenge this morning. It's an invitation, really. I'm going to pray with two groups. Some of you in this room have never experienced phase one. You, uh, you come to church, maybe because your spouse or your kids or your parents or friends dragged you here. But truth be told, if they didn't, you wouldn't be here. And anyway, putting a person in a church doesn't make them a Christian any more than putting a wheelbarrow in a garage makes it a car. You uh, are still the center of your life. Jesus is just one spoke in the wheel of your life, but he's not the center around which everything else revolves. And you are still separated from God. I don't want to assume because you're here, you're not. If you are separated from the love of Jesus Christ because you've kept him at arm's length, but today you want to take off the fig leaves and receive his love in a way that transforms you through and through, you want phase one, salvation. I'm not trying to shame you, I'm trying to save you. If that's your prayer, would you pray it with me? I'll lead us. Lord, perhaps there's some in this room who've never experienced your love. They've never opened up their lives to the love of Jesus Christ, the beautiful one, and they've never been saved. They're stuck. Singing, I'm only human. And stuck with it. But today they want your love more than anything else. Would you grab them, change their lives? Tell God in your own way that you want a relationship with him that lasts forever. Tell him right now that you want phase one. You want to be saved from your sin, forgiven, 
I'm set free. Just tell them. You said that prayer. Look at me. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Now I want to talk to the rest of you, and that's probably most of us. Phase two. Some of us in this room have given up on phase two. We're living in limbo between one and two. We've been saved. We've had victories. We're in love with Jesus. We love the body of Christ. God has used us in significant ways. But truth be told, we're beginning to stop believing that God can transform us, not just forgive us, but transform us so that we live holy, sanctified lives. We've become cynical, jaded. But today we're sensing that God is mustering up belief in that possibility again. Some of you are like, I haven't seen it much, but you haven't seen the Eiffel Tower, most of you. But you rely on the witness of your friends who've been to Paris, who tell you that the Eiffel Tower is there. And we need the witness of the saints to testify that the Eiffel Tower is possible, not with your words necessarily, but with your life. But if today you want to start believing again and open up yourself wide to phase two, would you pray this prayer with me? God, would you forgive our cynicism? Forgive us for quitting or taking a vacation, a sabbatical, a break from the quest to be holy like Christ. Because we failed too often and we're tired of failing perhaps. But this morning you're renewing our hope and the possibility. Because if the power of Jesus Christ is alive in us, then sanctification is not only possible, it's probable. God, we will not stop believing. Help us to avoid legalism and libertinism so that we're filled with your love, that we receive it and then extend it even to people we do not like. That is our sanctification. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. If you said one of those prayers, and I did myself for phase two, would you just stand so we can celebrate you? I'm not going to ask you to do anything or fill anything out or come to the altar. Would you stand so we can clap to God for what he's done? I got to believe that I'm not the only one standing in this church. Thank you. Let's clap like our favorite football team just won the Super Bowl, okay? It's even bigger than that. Thank you. Last word, then I'm done. From the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians, as a sort of benediction. May the God of peace, God himself, sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who calls us is faithful. And he will will do it. Amen.